Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Pashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. The Entolamaginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He cajoled his mother-in-law. Rose Callady to go on to the late late to appeal for witnesses and there's a very famous scene and in fact it's used quite a lot by criminal psychologists when you want to analyse at this stage the Gardaí suspected them they didn't like what they were saying so they were they had people professionals watching the late late show and obviously it was recorded and clearly from the body language of Rose Callady that night she, you know she, she she sat there rigid some people would say with rage and you know you could see that she was very very uncomfortable. Murder happened was in the bedroom, which is the very last room of the house. So it's the room where you're least likely to bring someone you don't know because you're cornered. My view as well would be, and again, it's just my view, it's not a police theory, it's, it's just my own personal belief, is that she knew the person because why else would you kill her? He gave a flippant interview and he seemed to be almost enjoying the attention, which again is another classic sign of the psychopath. We met years ago, um, about 13 years ago, at softball, which is a game like baseball where Rachel took it up, she was a lot better than I was. When you look back and it, you say, Jesus Christ, this guy is saying, hey, folks, I'm guilty, but you're not going to catch me, catch me, catch me, catch me. Today on the Indo-Daily, Joe O'Reilly's murder of his wife, Rachel, became one of the most notorious cases in the country. Staged as a burglary, O'Reilly thought he had carried out the perfect murder. What phone calls he made throughout that day would lead to his alibi unravelling. I'm Fiannon Sheehan, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Paul Williams, special correspondent with the Irish Independent, to take us through the story and the lengths Joe O'Reilly went through to cover up his crime. Paul, tell us about Rachel O'Reilly, or Rachel Cannelly, as her family likes her to be called now. Well, imperfectly correctly too, because why should the victim of this horrific murder carry the name of the person who plotted and murdered her? What we know of Rachel Callalee is that she was adopted by uh, Rose and Jim Callalee. She was big into sport. She had a big circle of friends. She grew up on the north side of Dublin. She was perfectly, what we know, a perfectly normal, healthy, wonderful human being. And her life story takes a major turn when she meets this guy called Joe O'Reilly, who she'd worked with, I believe, in Arnott's department store at one stage. And they met in the early 90s. He was 20, she was 18. And they fell in love and they married. And that's where this whole horrific 
tragedy starts. Yeah, so they're originally living on the north side and then ultimately they have two sons and they move out to North County Dublin. And she's raising the boys and and she's cut back on her own career while Joe uh, works away. Where do things start to go awry? Well, at the we their early lives have been described. You know, their early married life has been quite happy. They had the two kids. They bought a bungalow in the Nall in North County Dublin um, into in around two thousand and two. Um, a few years, just two years before her murder. But somewhere along the line, it, it started to go wrong, and that it started to go wrong when O'Reilly had an affair with a, a a woman he'd worked with called Nikki Pelly, and he fell in love with her, and he decided he no longer loved his his wife Rachel, and it's probably one of the oldest stories in human humankind. You know, uh, one of the partners in a relationship meets somebody else, they fall in love with that person, they fall out of love with the, the person they're with, and the thing called divorce happens, and they separate or whatever and a lot of heartache but this was one of these you know small number of cases and this is why I suppose it's so fascinating for the public the love turned to hate but not just hate but hate on a level murderous hate whereby it brought out the psychopath in Joe O'Reilly that Joe O'Reilly decided that he was not going to have the life he wanted it was all about him himself with Nikki Pelly and his two kids until he got rid of Rachel and that's why he set about murdering his wife and why this became one of the most high profile murders in the past 20, 30 years in this country. Yeah, so in in, in his mind, he, he views Rachel as a as an obstacle to this new life for him. He doesn't want to be a, a divorced dad seeing the, the kids at weekends. So he doesn't view divorce uh, as the option. We proceed then to that fateful day, October 4th, 2004. Mm. Starts out as a normal day, Dory, doesn't it? Well, let's just briefly go through what he did that day. Uh, it's the Monday, October the 4th, uh, 2004. He was up at 5 a.m. He left the house. He went towards the Jackie Skelly gym in Park West on the outskirts of, of South West Dublin. And he was due to meet a friend and workmate there at 6.30 and do a bit of training with him. Uh, he stopped for petrol after his session in the gym. Himself and his mate left separately from the gym and went to their office, which was Viacom Outdoor Advertising, which was in the Bluebell Industrial Estate uh, near Ballyfermot. He sent an email to a colleague and warning him that he might be out of phone coverage for most of the morning and that they would they could meet for lunch later that day. It would appear that at this stage, this is when he set about his plan to murder his wife. What do we know of from there? Well, we know that evidence given from telephone records at the time showed that at 8.12 a.m. he got a call from Nikki Pelly, his lover, and it was rooted through a, a mast, a telephone mast, at Chapel is just north of the industrial estate where he worked. So that showed where he was in that particular area at the time. But then CCTV evidence then showed O'Reilly's car was seen at a number of locations, including Blake's Cross, which was close to the M1 in North County, Dublin, and then passing up an area called Murphy's Quarry in the direction of the O'Reilly home. And that was at 9.10 a.m., uh, 15 minutes later, and uh, an incoming call to O'Reilly's mobile uh, went through the mast at Murphy's Quarry near the family home. So this is where, the, for the first time, by the way, the significance of this, this is where telecommunications evidence was really used so effectively for the first time. So what we're seeing here is that far from going to the Broadstone bus garage, he's actually gone up towards his own home. What happens from there? And, and he thinks he's off the radar. So on that morning, Rachel had left her home shortly before 9am and her car was picked up on CCTV cameras at 9.03am passing the same quarry, Murphy's quarry. Um, she was on her way to drop her son 
Luke to school before leaving the other son, Adam, to his crash. Now, 9.41, police cameras spotted her car passing the quarry uh, en route back to the house. So she arrived home at about at around 9.45. O'Reilly was waiting for her in her bedroom. This is where the staged burglary takes place. And as she walked through the door, he struck her on the head with a blunt instrument, which was always believed to be a dumbbell, a weight that he was using in a home gym. And he rained blows down on her and until she, she was dead. It was a horrific scene, apparently, by all accounts, from what we were told at the time. And in order to make it look like a burglary, then he ransacked the room pulled out drawers and, and stole a camera um, and he got rid of the weapon too and he later suggested to a friend of Rachel's that it must have been disposed of in quotes water to get rid of the DNA which was one of the strange sort of things that happened uh, which led to his downfall mm. but in his haste then he, to, to get back to the city uh, to where he said he was all the time he made a number of mistakes he forgot for example to take money from his wife's purse a decision that immediately made Rachel's mother and the Gardaí think the burglary had been staged. From this point then, he has murdered his wife. He is attempting to return to a normal schedule. From there, he, he tries to, he manipulates it such that her mother discovers the body and he pretends as if everything is normal that morning. And this is where this whole crime illustrates how hideous it was and also what a psychotic creature he was that he didn't read like he was a classic psychopath and this his need to get out of his life with his wife basically brought all these qualities out in him that morning between 11.52 and 1.45pm uh, he left four voicemails on Rachel's mobile phone and during that time he got a call from the crash saying that his son hadn't been picked up and he decided well okay I better go and collect my son again as you say he's everything is normal it's it's all perfectly normal but then he called Rachel's mum so basically she went to the house to find her daughter bludgeoned to death and he set that up he wanted her Rachel Callity's mother has always said that consistently that she believed that Joe O'Reilly wanted her to find her daughter that morning. He is pretending basically from the time at which he has murdered Rachel that everything is normal. This is his creation of an alibi that he has continued on with work. He's left phone calls for her. He didn't get a, get the phone call from the crash. He naturally goes to pick up his son. He naturally rings his, his mother-in-law to see, to check in on his wife, knowing all the time that this has happened. He then arrives out at the house and again there's an act put on here where he, he claims that but uh, he was he's actually, so upset. In his bid to make himself look beyond suspicion, apparently he was even being prepared to bring his child, the little child, into the house innocently like you would do because you don't know what's going on in the house. And a neighbour stopped him and then he ran by his mother and all straight to the house, into the bedroom and he called, Jesus, Rachel, what did you do? Um, and that's where it starts. That night, by the way, he stays at his mother's house, gets the clothes that he's wearing cleaned. So again, he's covering his his tracks. The murder weapon has been disposed of and, and is, is never found. But ultimately, what raises suspicions is his rather strange behaviour. Can you go through a couple of those uh, incidents? You are right. The, the, it looked for a short while for him that his plan was going well because it was a burglary gone wrong. But on October the 12th, Gardy gave, gave him back the keys of the, of, uh, of the family home after it had been obviously a murder scene and a crime scene. 
Uh, and the next day he invited Rachel's parents, uh, Rose and Jim, to come over, saying he felt there was peace in the house and that he felt Rachel was there. And they were a bit wary of, they were wary of him but agreed to go, but uh, brought along their son uh, and his wife. And he brought them into the bedroom and then did something that sort of appalled the family of of this murdered woman. He started to act out the murder in front of them, raising his hand and drawing it down, then going down on his hunkers, all, all the time ad, uh, administering imaginary blows at the spot where Rachel died. And he pointed out the blood spatter, which was still on the walls and the door frame. And then he moved into the bathroom and he, he told the women there that it was likely that they went to clean up in the bathroom, the killer or killers. Uh, but they heard her gurgling and went back to finish her off. Like, this is extraordinary stuff to come from a man who's the love of his life, the, his wife, his, the mother of his two children has been so brutally murdered to come out with it. It's like, you know, some of these guys, like when you deal with criminal psychology, they say some of these guys have, have, have really dangerous minds and can really plot and plan and cold-bloodedly plan something. But this guy was leaving footprints all over the place in the snow that, that an elephant could track, you know. He, um, he also, in, inside in work, colleagues say he, he was acting perfectly normal considering he was supposed to be in mourning. He, he goes on the Late Late Show and, and again, it's a sign of this erratic, tension-seeking behaviour. He apparently cajoled his mother-in-law, Rose Callady, to go on to the Late Late to appeal for witnesses. And there's a very famous scene, and in fact, it's used quite a lot by criminal psychologists when you want to analyse, because th at this stage, the Guardians suspected them. They didn't like what they were saying. So they, were, they had people, professionals, watching the Late Late Show, and obviously it was recorded. And clearly from the body language of Rose Callaly that night, she, you know, she, she, she sat there rigid, some people would say, with rage. And, you know, you could see that she was very, very uncomfortable. He rang us that night and invited us down. He said he was going down to the house the next day and he felt so great after it. He thought it would do us good. But I walked out of the house knowing without a shadow of a doubt in my mind that he had murdered Rachel. He, like, again, when you look back and it, you say, Jesus Christ, this guy is saying, hey, folks, I'm guilty, but you're not going to catch me. Um, like... He, he's, for example, he gave a flippant interview and he seemed to be almost enjoying the attention, which again is another classic sign of the psychopath. Um, uh, Pat Murray, who was one, the, the lead detective in, in this case, like in so many famous Garda, who's now retired, he said he, he, he interviewed the staff uh, in RT and he, he found that he was acting like a man who wasn't in any way grieving. Like he scoffed all the sandwiches, ate all the crisps, drank all the tea um, when he was in the green room. Um, it just wasn't, everything about him was wrong. It was off. The guy wasn't uh, overcome with grief. He was putting on a performance. Ultimately, this behaviour brings him to the attention of the guards. But what we see ultimately in this prosecution is the use of modern technology. You have obviously advances in, in DNA in that period, but in this case, we see CCTV uh, and mobile phone pinging effectively come to the fore. 
Yeah, but this is at a time in criminal history, criminal investigative history, that you know we're seeing an evolution and a revolution um, in 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 investigative techniques. Because just shortly towards the end of the nineties, we have the introduction, wholesale introduction of DNA. We have also got increasingly much more sophisticated and reliable CCTV systems. Uh, but primarily, we have the increasing use of digital telephone technology, and as that technology is, re- is is growing in sophistication, it's becoming easier and easier to track phones and trace phones. Now, I remember in Veronica Gearn's murder, uh, which was 1996, that was the very, very first time to use telephone technology. But there was an awful lot of holes in the, in the evidence of that because it wasn't as traceable as it was in 2004. So this was the very first case, really, uh, certainly the most high-profile case, where telephone technology really did work because what it did was it literally brought us on the journey that Joe O'Reilly took that morning where he was receiving calls uh, what mass were uh, calls were bouncing from clearly put a lie to his claim that he was somewhere else uh, it literally gave the police the guardian a map of his movements that morning and then his behavior and all of that came together in a wall of evidence that ultimately convicted him. So in this case, we we've no witnesses. We have no murder weapon. There's there's no uh, DNA evidence pinning pinning it on it on him. Uh, so he almost concocted the perfect murder, did he? But but he's basically caught out by his own hubris. It, Absolutely. That's the best way to describe it. And then it's supported technologically. Um, like, oh, there's a raw elements to this story. Like, on the morning of Rachel Callaly's funeral on October the 11th, it had been suggested that family friends might like to write letters and cards to Rachel to be placed in her coffin. And Joe sat at the kitchen table and wrote a letter to his wife. And her body was subsequently exhumed in March 2005, which illustrates again how much the Gardaí went into this. The forensic specialists moved into the Fingal burial ground at first light this morning. The cemetery was sealed off. Gardaí set up a forensic tent and examined the body of Rachel O'Reilly. They found a five-page letter from O'Reilly in the coffin and in it he wrote, This is the hardest letter I've ever had to write for reasons only we know. Rachel, forgive me. Two words, one sentence. I'll say them forever. And this was, again, another mistake he had made and it was used, it was another block in the wall of circumstantial evidence against him. Ultimately, the the case goes to court. A jury finds him guilty. What's the sentence and ultimately what happened with Joe O'Reilly? Well, Joe O'Reilly got convicted of murder and he got life imprisonment and in his case uh, as he is part of a cohort of of quite notorious killers in our prisons life tends to mean life for these guys like he's now in prison 18 years the average life sentence is around 20 I would say he'll spend another 10 years in prison he has never admitted or his guilty has never shown any kind of remorse he has made several appeals none of which have worked Joe O'Reilly has lost his attempt to have his murder conviction declared a miscarriage of justice. The Court of Appeal dismissed his application and said it was an unacceptable strategy to raise the arguments he had raised at this point. O'Reilly was found guilty of murdering his wife Rachel at their home in Knoll, County Dublin, and sentenced to life in prison in July of 2007. Joe O'Reilly is going to reside in prison until such time as a Minister for Justice decides in consultation with the Parole Board that he is a fit and proper person to be allowed out 
again. I think as long as Rachel Callaly's family have breath in them and they've been really strong on this and have campaigned and have honoured their daughter's uh, memory, I don't think they'll allow that to happen. And I don't think any Minister for Justice is like, as I say, again, there's a cohort of people like Joe O'Reilly who it'll take a very brave justice minister to decide and sign on the dotted line that these people should walk free and bloody right. And my thanks to Paul Williams for joining me today. I'm Fiona Chain, and today's episode was produced and researched by Tabitha Monaghan with sound design by Gavin Hennessy, clips from RTE and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.